Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. If you're looking for news, tips, and stories about fishing the Great Lakes, you've come to the right place. And now your host, Chris Larson. Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast. For the past 10 or so episodes, I've been sharing conversations I've had with various folks from the Greater Niagara Sports and Outdoors show. I've got more interviews from Niagara coming up, but this week I want to bring you, the audience, something fresh and a little different. We haven't done a Lake Huron show yet, so today we're joined by a true veteran of Lake Huron, Captain Ed Rutherford from Trout Scout Charters. Captain Ed, thanks for joining the show. You're welcome, Chris. Now, you've been on Lake Huron for a long, long time. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience, your background, your story as it pertains to Lake Huron fishing? Sure. Well, um, my grandfather started me back in, the, well, actually in, in the late late 40s. So that sort of puts me in what age group. But anyways, in the late 40s, but I was at that time, I was only one year old and he put me on a boat. But anyways, um, so he, they said I was hooked to fishing and unfortunately passed away the next year. But my family's always been active in the outer doors and, and they were avid trout fishermen um, on our great stream that we have on this side of the state, the Asabo, which was one of the, you know, the best trout streams in the Midwest. So um, in my younger years, I grew up fishing rivers and fly fishing. Um, then in the middle 60s, um, I went to college in the southern part of Michigan, and um, I was a major in biology, actually in pre-med, but uh, I decided to go into teaching, so I went into biology. And um, at that time, they were just planting salmon in the Great Lakes, and I became very interested in that. Um, it, <clears throat> unfortunately, it wasn't Michigan State, but I did contact uh, Dr. Toady and Dr. Tanner at the time and told them I wanted to do a coho growth rate because they just started planting the coal in 1966 and that was right my sophomore year in college so I got involved in that and did a paper on that and then the rest was history I ended up coming to Alpena I was a I was a football coach and an avid fisherman and I started guiding on the Asabo in 1969 and at that time it was you know, the the start of the salmon runs in that river along with the steelhead and, and that and I and I and I got involved in what was called at the time the Michigan Guide Association, which now is is defunct, but it was it was there uh for five or six years. So I did that and then, you know, took customers in that and then they planted brown trout in Alpena and I became involved, uh was right in my backyard, so uh and we became a world famous brown trout fishery along with along with the other fishers and i um actually made that sort of my life for 10 or 15 years until the brown trout fishing sort of phased out but we you know at that time i, I was also boat fishing and and back in the and then i had started full time in the chartering in the early 70s so so basically at that time period i've been at it for 51 years i'm making so a long time. Tell us about that paper that you did uh, in the late '60s on salmon growth. What was that all about? Well, we had to we had to have a paper to graduate. Okay, the seniors did, and there wasn't you know it was a small school. It was Olivet, which you know had very small 
group of individuals, but in order to graduate, we had to do that. So what I did, I figured, what the heck, I love to fish. So I got on the phone and called Michigan State, and I actually got a hold of Dr. Tanner, who years later, of course, didn't remember that, but he uh, he directed me to where the coho were. At that time, it was one of the one of the besides Platte. They he was uh, they were planting them in the Platte River, but it was a hairy at a hatchery. So I drove up there with two great big jugs and got like 25 small and brought them back to Olivet, had ice in them. And, you know, of course, then we didn't even have an aerator or anything. We didn't figure how we're going to keep them alive and um, put them in a tub, kept them cool enough and started to grow them. Well, at the same time, they started catching some fish uh, up in Marquette in, in Lake Superior some coho during the winter, which I was able to get stomach samples and scale samples. So I, I actually did a scale read of, you know, from the beginning till they were about approximately a year and a half and did a comparison on the growth rates and that, and that was a paper. So, and I, and I published that for my, for my graduation. I only made a couple computation errors or calculation errors, but it was, you know, it was well taken in, but but again, it was, you know, at that time, nobody even thought about writing anything like that. So. What went into the decision to start putting Coho into Lake Huron? Well, their their decision was that, you know, they planted him in Lake Michigan. They put him here. Um, and at the time, at the time, what happened was nobody was really fishing for him out in the lake. You know, our our trolling hadn't really started yet. Everybody was stream fishing them, so they would wait till they came in in the fall. And then that was sort of the the downfall of the coho. You know, if we talk about coho salmon, that was a downfall of the coho uh, in Lake Huron was that nobody was fishing them until they came to the streams. So actually, they stopped planting the coho, and they started planting Chinook in other places, but they did not in Alpena. But what they did plant was like I said, in the, in the early and middle seventies was brown trout and that are the way our bay is situated. They just boomed here. I mean, we had, like I said, some of the top brown trout fishing in the world at that time. I mean, there were people who, you know, once they learned of it came from all over. And then we still had, we still had lake trout and we still had, we still had the Kings if we moved to them, you know, if we went to where they planted them in the Asabo or up at Rogers city. And, you know, like I said, I, I grew with that. But in the 70s, my boat was pretty well rigged for brown trout fishing. And what happened there? How, how has that brown trout fishery evolved over the years? Well, it went gung-ho till the middle 90s. And then, uh, like a lot of things, you know, I, I was very adamant about keeping the brood stock, you know, hoping they would. Um, but after so many years in the hatchery, they had to get rid of the brood stock. And the problem was the broodstock that they brought in was actually at that time from West Virginia. And that was, you know, of course, West Virginia wasn't well noted for brown trout, of course. So the fish went from relatively large down to where they were like seven to nine pounds was an adult brown. So most of us were used to, you know, I mean, I got all sorts of photos of fish over, you know, close to over 17 to 24 pounds, you know, at that time period. So, so that went on. And then, 
in the early 90s, uh, they kept kept moving around uh, with the different types of fish. And they brought in the sea forellin, which was a sea brown trout uh, from Europe. And that fish was a rapid grower. And, I mean, it would grow to 20 pounds in three years, except it burns it, burn itself, it would burn itself out. For some reason, they didn't like that in the hatchery. And that was sort of downplayed. Well, then we started having, you know, for just talking about brown trout, we started having invasive species and changes starting happening in the mid-90s in the Great Lakes. And the brown trout plants started to, to decay or fizzle out uh, as far as survival, and, and basically they stopped planting them. So that pretty much ended that fishery. But, of course, at the same time, I was fishing trout and salmon uh, during certain times of the summer and, you know, kept doing that. Like, you know, and then we had the, we had the downfall or actually the crash in 2004 uh, where the airwife, we actually had the, the major die off and, and the crash from the invasive species of the alewife, which was an invasive species to begin with, but was our basic feed in the Great Lakes, and especially in Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. And, Lake, of course, Lake Michigan didn't see that, but we did. And, I mean, the salmon basically crashed. And uh, when I do my, my seminars, I just say that I'm a survivor because I stayed here because I, I, like I said, over the years, I've had lots of mates when I was talking to you uh, before because I've done it for so long. And a lot of these kids have turned into captains and they, they've moved to other parts. And of course, my, my kids are actively in the fishing family too. So, How did that progress, Ed? You said there was a crash in bait fish. How did that evolve from, from that point to where we are now? What actually happened was that, of course, the airwife crashed. And we were planting, you know, it was felt we were planting so many fish. And also nobody knew how many pit fish were actually being naturally reproduced. I don't know if anybody still knows that because we always argue about it. But the Lake Heron Advisory, which I'm part of, and a group of individuals uh, from all over this side of the state, and along with the DNR officials and, and different organizations, our members, uh, we came to the agreement that uh, we would stop planting Chinook salmon uh, except for a few ports because, number one, they weren't, they weren't coming back, and number two, the growth rate of them were, were terrible. But when they crashed, I mean, those fish, they were like 30, 36 to 38-inch long fish, and they were lucky to weigh nine pounds. I mean, you know, there was... There's been documentations and, you know, I've done, you know, other videos and that with, 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 uh, with video people and that showing, you know, what actually happened. And, you know, they have great big heads and long bodies and way, way approximately, I mean, they were just starving themselves to death. So we had to adapt. Of course, what our go-to fish at that time was, was number one, lake trout. And then number two, uh, walleyes, and I became a walleye fisherman, although I'm not, you know, I'm not considered a walleye fisherman, but I lowered myself to become a walleye fisherman. So I, I, uh, 
started doing that too. And then along with that, we were still catching a few steelhead and we, you know, we were, we had a, we had a fairly good mixed bag. And then I don't know if you want to ask, but I can, I can keep going actually to where we are today. If you'd like me to do that too. Please, please do. Okay. So, so we got together and as a group, numerous people and we talked it over and, and the, the big thing was, you know, how can we bring the inshore fishery without actually harming and was anything coming back as far as the bait fish population? Of course, us as fishermen, we felt that there was a being a rebound of bait fish, but the people that were doing the surveys for uh, the for the for the federal government and for the state were saying they're not seeing that huge of a rebound in fish, uh, bait fish I'm talking about, but we were, you know, as far as captains, but again, you know, we're not talking about the entire lake. So, you know, it was a pretty tough argument. But there were other fish because we were looking at, you know, maybe steelhead or maybe brown trout or maybe some other fish we could plant would eat would eat bugs and would eat crayfish and would eat other things. Well, um, of course, the trout would. The salmonoids, the kings would not eat gobies. You know, and gobies were now gobies were running rampant over here, uh, which was the invasive species of choice as far as bait fish. And the lake trout would eat them, but the uh, but the but the salmon would not. And you know, that was always a big deal was that we couldn't get, you know, we couldn't get the kings back as far as the plants because because there wasn't any bait fish. So we had to bring another fish in. So at the same time, Lake State um, University in, in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, they have a gentleman who was raising Atlantic salmon and putting them in the St. Mary's River. And the kids were actually doing basically, you know, what I was doing back in the sixties, they were actually at this time though, they had an aquaculture and they had their own lab and they actually had their own little hatchery and they could actually plant Atlantic salmon. So what we did there, we looked at that, the salmon and, and uh, the Atlantic salmon and we, you know, they eat bugs. They have a lot of characteristics as far as as um, the brown trout did, as far as being able to take the warm water, uh, coming in and spawning, uh, living after they spawn. Uh, so they looked like a logical choice. So the DNR agreed to plant certain mountain Lake Huron. So that's that's where we're at today on that. We still have to figure out if that's going to be a success or not, but we are, we are catching them. The problem, you know, as far as me being a fisherman, the problem with, with me is that number one, they're salmon. So they're not real predictable on where they're going to be from day to day. So it's not real easy as far as a charter captain to say, I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to go out and catch Atlantic salmon because where they were yesterday, they could be 10 miles away you know, today. So that's, that's been the case there, but, but we are trying to develop that and slowly it looks like it. I got to be cautious because that could change every year. It looks like the smelt 
and it looks like our bait is coming back and we're starting to catch kings now on a fairly regular basis, but not not the amount that we did in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. I mean, people, we were very underrated. I mean, people had no idea how good of a fishery we had on Lake Huron at the time uh, for king salmon. But, you know, when it crashed, you know, we we basically were the negative aspect because when it went, they definitely, I mean, it went right down the tubes. So things are starting to come back, but what are like the, the challenges that you see right now with Lake Huron that, that the fishery is facing right now that we have to tackle to kind of get to where you want to be? Well, number one, um, the species, um, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the zebra mussels and then no zooplankton because of the, the larger, the larger mussels, um, the quadra mussels were eating zooplankton habitat or eating them, you know, whatever, but they filter. Um, so number one, uh, the, the, they feel that that hindered a lot of the bait fish from coming back. The alewives, of course, are invasive. So the federal government does not want to have alewives come back because of course that's their, their, their goal and their mission statement is to have a natural Great Lakes, which, you know, of course us as charter captains don't agree with that, but, you know, that's, that's their goal. Um, but I think it's coming back slowly, but again, you know, with me being a biologist, the zebra mussels change the balance of nature, what it might take nature 10 years to do. I feel that the zebra mussels and the invasive species can change it in two years. So that's, you know, quite a shock, you know, in our area. And I think that, you know, some of the other fringe areas, I mean, even I'm hearing it right now about a little bit about Lake Erie became becoming so clean and even Lake Ontario, which is, you know, that's great because the water clarity is unbelievable, but that also changes the whole, balance of nature i mean number one you know even if you're a novice fish can see a lot farther so i don't know if, if bait fish actually have a chance when they're hatching you know i mean somebody have i'm sure there's been papers done on it but you know that's i mean we can see 45 to 50 feet down now where before you could hardly see a tail of a fish coming up you know when i first started so i mean that's how drastically it's changed and and of course, I talked to you a little bit about it, and you know, with with all the with all the the different staffs that I'm on, that's why temperature and water clarity, and and you know, actually, you know, going down on some of our rigs, you know, instead of running five down riggers, a lot of us only run two and three now, and you know, a lot of stuff that you know, like Fishhawk does, and and the temperature people do, and and you know, the different the different graph people that you know the the different graph people i'm with uh we're all aware of you know thermoclines and temperatures that you know we were aware of back in the 60s it's just that the technology is so much better now what do you see as the future of fishing on lake huron you know myself you know of course i'm winding down you know hopefully i can go another two or three years um but I, it, it is actually coming back because what we have now, what, what I actually advertise in my business is 
we have a variety. I know a lot of people want to come and catch Chinook at one time, you know, kind of deal, but we can catch seven different species in one day, which, you know, a lot of, a lot of places can't do that or even advertise that. And, you know, a lot of those guys, a lot of them don't, you know, even like to say that, but, but, you know, even in our spreads now, I'm catching walleyes in a hundred to 150 feet of water because we fish in different areas than we used to fish as far as the water columns. So, um, you know, one day, like I said, I might catch Atlantic salmon, I might catch steelhead, I might catch pink salmon, coho, chinook, lake trout, you know, so that, you know, that's quite a mixed bag. Ed, right now, the whole world is kind of dealing with this coronavirus deal. How has that affected business for you and business for other charter captains in your area? Oh, I, we're all shut down. Okay, we, we, uh, we've been told by our head law enforcement agency that we cannot charter. Um, and that, that was up, um, that came out, you know, I'm going to give you approximately, you know, you heard, but approximately March 15th or March 20th, um, that we can't even be, I can't even be near my boat because my boat's on, on dry land and it's covered. Uh, and I talked to my son and his boat's in lockup. Uh, we can't even get to our boats to work on them over here. So, um, you know, it's it's very devastating. And, of course, you know, this time of the year, like last year, we had all sorts of snow and rain and wind and everything else. And, of course, you know, like before the interview started, I'm sitting here telling you I'm watching deer and there's no wind and it's like 60 degrees or 55 degrees here today, you know, and dead calm. You know, that's what that's what they're doing to us now. We're sitting here looking and going, you know, we could be out running trips where normally I'm so far north that I don't run trips this time of the year. Kind of a tough deal all around and uh, hope that you guys can keep going and be ready to get back out on the water really soon. And is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about today? No, well, just that, you know, it's been a great, it's been a great career. And, you know, I met, I met lots of great people and, you know, I always tell my kids if they're traveling and something happens that, you know, if they need somebody to call that, you know, just give me a call and I can connect them with somebody. And like I said, both the boys, uh, both the boys, Philip, my oldest, my oldest son, um, he's a captain and Paul, my youngest son's a captain and my daughter, she's probably as avid as they are. And she's got a ranger. Uh, so she's, she's biting at the bit to go fishing. And, and, uh, so the, you know, like I said, the entire family's down right now. Um, but you know, and, and along with my mates too. So, you know, that's, you know, that been around that are captains now. So well, there's all sorts of people that, that are down. I mean, it's, you know, like we were told, we were warned, you know, that we'd get tickets if we were even close to being out on the water. Well, if someone is interested in finding out more about you or getting out on the water with you when this is all over, how's the best way for them to find you? Well, my, my webpage, um, you know, www.troutscoutcharters.com or just bring up Lake Huron Fishing Trout Scout. There is, there is another Trout Scout. We sort of laugh about it, but, you know, there aren't many of them, so they didn't 
There wasn't a lot of copies, but I'm from Scout 5. My cell phone number is 989-657-2681. And anybody can call me, not just about charters, but if they want to come up here and fish. And, you know, the big deal now is Atlantic salmon. Uh, a lot of people want to come. You know, it's not, it's, it's, you got to fish for them. It's not catching. It's, it's a lot like, you know, a, a glory fish or a fish that people want to single out, you know, and take off their bucket list. It's not something they're going to catch a lot of. Awesome. But it's been nice talking to you. And, and like I said, uh, I appreciate the call and, and I appreciate you asking me to do this. Thanks so much, Captain Ed Rutherford, Alpena, Michigan, Fishing Lake Huron. Thanks for listening to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. For more information on fishing the Great Lakes, visit our blog at fishhawkelectronics.com.